Welcome to another episode of Return on Character podcast where I get to interview famous and should be famous people who think character matters in the world. I've got Michael Glauser with me today who not only thinks it matters but is actually doing things about it to try to move the needle for the collective uh, in exactly this category. Thank you for taking your time today, uh, Mike, uh, to to be with us today. Welcome, and uh, I'll just let you say hello to everybody. Well, it's great to be with you, Dan, and hello to all of your listeners. I'm really excited to uh, have this conversation. I think we have a lot in common. You know, uh, as you know, we we in my business we 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 look to invest in leaders of character. Uh, we've tried to make, we, we, it's based off of science. We try to create a science in the process of identifying leaders, uh, who represent the four character habits or show evidence of the four character habits of integrity, responsibility, forgiveness, and compassion in the way they lead their organizations. Um, and you've been a CEO of companies, you've had quite a career it's one of those, you're one of those guests that it'll, it's kind of fun just to hear your story to start us off. So if you wouldn't mind, tell us, tell us your story and then, uh, and then I, I'd love to hear about what you're working on today. And uh, we, we, I'm sure, find some common connections in, in the purpose that you're striving for. Mike, just tell us about how you got started. When I was a college student, I was really intrigued with the concept of building human organizations. Uh, I wanted to be able to build companies that uh, were very effective in what they did, that had great products and services, but were also really wonderful places to work where people would love being there, satisfaction would be high, and they'd, they'd want to work there even if they didn't have to work. And so I went on this quest uh, in the academic world. They did a bachelor's, master's, and PhD quickly which now I look back wasn't a great idea, but I had a PhD at 27 years old and started teaching at the University of North Carolina. And I walked into my first class, it was an executive MBA course, and, and I wrote my name on the board with a lot of bravado, Dr. Glauser, and turned around, and I was the youngest guy in the room by probably 15 years. Uh, these were seasoned executives doing an executive MBA program, and I quickly realized that if I ever wanted to be a thought leader and really understand entrepreneurship, I, I needed to leave the safe harbor of academics and go build some companies. And that was a little bit uh, frightening because, you know, I wanted a career in, in academics. And if I left and then went out and failed at several companies and came back, I'd be the, the guy teaching entrepreneurship that couldn't build a business. Right. And you wouldn't be teaching very much probably, right? <laughs> So I went out and really had a marvelous time building companies. We built six companies. Um, five were successful. Uh, the first one was a failure because we didn't understand what we uh, later learned to do and to teach. And uh, our biggest company, we had 600 employees. It was a multi-million dollar business in the food, ser food services industry. And uh, I sold that company. Uh, it was traded on the public uh, Toronto Stock Exchange and sold it to a company that was buying up food companies in the U.S. And so now here I am, I've got my freedom and independence and what do I do next? And so I really committed to helping other people build and scale companies that were great companies that uh, 
that were had great products and services that were meeting important needs and that were great places for people to work. So I spent a lot of time consulting and teaching at universities, and uh, that's been my my mission ever since. Uh, the latest work that we're doing now is is based on some observations we had that we we felt like there were two epidemics in America right now and in the world for that matter. And one was this epidemic of despair. Good. You know, your listeners may know 21% of adults in America are suffering from a diagnosable emotional or mental illness. That's huh. one out of, you know, one out of five. So if you have a company with a hundred employees, 21 of them are struggling emotionally. If you have a thousand employees, over 200 of them may be struggling. And there's a lot of research that shows how adverse that impact is on an organization. People uh, take more sick days. They're not as uh, happy in teams. Their communication is not as good. Their performance is typically lower. And the second epi epidemic is what we call an epidemic of incivility. There's just so much contention and judging and divisiveness and uh, politicization and uh, hatred between parties. And we thought, okay, to, to build great companies, we need to address those two two issues. And so that led me into the work that I, I'm doing now uh, on creating uh, really wonderful cultures that are happier, more civil cultures and organizations. And we think we've identified the concepts that, that people can learn and practice to do that. It's one thing to write a book or to identify the concepts and have genuine quality content and value to bring. It's another thing to actually get companies to say, yeah, I want that, or look internally enough to say, oh, we need that. How do you bridge that gap? How do you get into the trenches with these organizations? And can you give an example of some of these, maybe a company that you've been working with, you wouldn't have to name it if you don't want to, but an example of, of the transformational process? First of all, in my consulting practice over the years, I've, I've only worked with companies where I can work directly with the CEO, the C-suite and the board, and they have to be really excited, committed about the change process. We're interested in helping them through. Uh, we've never accepted um, agreements with companies where they, they want us to come in and fix the middle and the lower half, but they're not really committed to be part of it. And so uh, there are companies that, you know, aren't really interested in, in looking at the whole individual and helping to train people to uh, have greater wellness and emotional health at work. And so we choose, we're choosing to work with those that are very interested in that. And uh, it's often not the huge companies, but more the middle, middle-sized companies. But we actually, the book just came out and uh, the training programs have just been developed. We're just rolling that out right now. So we're, we're, we have an MBA course, a university course on inclusiveness and civility that universities are adopting. And we're just rolling it out to companies right now, um, the civility program. But we will work with companies that are real interested in creating a really positive culture and that benefits everyone in the organization. And, you know, traditionally we, uh, in organizations we want, we silo individuals, we want your work behavior. We just want the skills that you bring to work, bring them to work, do your job and go home. And more and more companies now are starting to realize that we've got to look at the whole individual. And if you look at the whole individual and bring, uh, developmental opportunities into the company, uh, 
people are more interested in working with us. They stay longer, they're happier, they perform better. And so, you know, it's, it's real interesting that, um, if we, if we look at culture and what creates a positive culture, it's, there's several factors. One is that there's a strong purpose for that organization, that there's real value they're adding to people's lives other than just making money, that the leadership, uh, members of the leadership team are examples of, you know, great values, integrity, and civility, that they provide uh, opportunities for everyone to participate, interact, everyone's voice is heard. They provide developmental opportunities. And the research is now pretty overwhelming that if, if that type of culture exists, it impacts all the important outcomes that we would measure, the metrics that are important. So retention goes up significantly. Uh, recruiting improves because people it's interesting, before people accept the job, they always read the reviews of employees about that organization. And there's evidence that they don't even want to apply for a job if the culture's perceived to be negative. And of course, satisfaction is higher, the interaction's more satisfying, and, and there is evidence that performance is better in more positive cultures. Well, those are the, that's the, you just kind of nailed the entire investment premise and thesis of rock investments in that if you're able to identify organizations that are firing uh, on those cylinders, as you described, and we describe them as integrity, responsibility, forgiveness, and compassion, and on the leadership side, which we tra think translates to a lot of the civility side as well, um, that the research has shown that performance follows. Um, how do you get a company from not being those things to being those things? You know, how do you go in, how do you work with companies? How do you, how do you in, in, integrate programs to, to try to foster this change? Because we all know change is the most difficult thing. You know, the, the first thing that we do is we talk to them about culture and the impact of culture and what culture is and try to help them evaluate what type of culture they have. And this is really an employee market right now. It's hard to find employees. And it's hard to keep employees. Uh, college graduates tend to uh, have three jobs the first five years out of school. And so if it's not a really, really positive, warm culture, they're not going to attract and keep people. So that kind of gets their attention. And then we have to determine how serious they are at doing some training that really benefits everyone in the organization. And so our program, um, we have the six concepts that we've identified that really promote greater happiness and civility. And the two are related. If we're happier, we're more civil. And if we're more civil, we have better relationships, so we're happier. And so if they're interested in doing that, then, uh, you know, we have a, a variety of options. We have uh, the two-day seminars that we can teach. We have uh, a program where we can teach uh, half a day each week for six weeks. We can teach, uh, have them read and go through all of our video material and, and gather each week for lunch for kind of brown bag discussions. So there's a lot of ways to introduce these six concepts in the organization. But, you know, that, that's what the new book is about, the six factors that have been shown over time, over our history and through modern science to really have immediate impact on happiness and civility in real time. So if you do them today, you're going to be happier today. And if you do them over a longer period of time, they're going to become more part of you, our character. So that's pretty much what we're promoting. Tell, remind us again of the six, six factors. So the first one we call give up the ego. 
And, uh, you know, ego has been defined as someone that's really proud and cocky and thinks they're better than everyone else. But traditionally throughout religious history and uh, philosophy, uh, ego has been defined as the composite of all your self-perceptions. So we're really looking at limiting self-perceptions. What perceptions do you have of yourself? Where did they come from? And they tend to develop earlier in our lives from feedback uh, from parents and teachers and friends and even the media, and they set bounds and limitations on what we do. So we look at, you know, how do you feel about yourself and how can we develop more positive uh, perceptions that actually will improve your life and your career? The next one is uh, we call a refrain from judging. And what we, we teach is that we develop biases of other people the same way we develop perceptions of ourselves. They're Good. not always accurate. They're often incomplete. Sometimes they're dead wrong. And so it's an attempt to get people to look at their biases and try to shed those and improve their relationships with other groups that maybe are not like them. Uh, the third one is probably one of the biggest factors on daily happiness. It's, we call it good, do good deeds daily or, uh, you know, make a difference today. And it's just random acts of kindness in the organization, sharing time, sharing thoughts, sharing resources, sharing some help and compassion with someone that's struggling. Uh, the fourth one is, is forgiveness. And there's a tremendous amount of research that holding on to anger and grudges does a tremendous amount of damage to us personally. It's like drinking poison and waiting for the other guy to die who we're mad at. <laughs> and there's one study, a, a professor at the University of Wisconsin who's done over 100 studies on forgiveness. And, you know, Buddha, we looked at some of the religious texts and, and Buddha had a great analogy. He said, there's three types of people in the world regarding forgiveness. There's the person who's like a line etched in stone. That line lasts for a long, long time. Then there's the person who's like a line etched in the dirt. And that line stays there, but eventually it dissipates. And then there's the person, the happiest person, who's like a line etched in water. The line quickly dissipates. And you realize that, hey, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. You're not perfect. You make mistakes. We can both be different people tomorrow. So why would we hold on to anger for things that, you know, maybe you did to me yesterday? And it helps us personally to increase our happiness and improve our relationships. And it makes organizations more civil. Um, the fifth one is we call sharing our resources. And this is really about, you know, clinging to material possessions as part of our identity. That fabricated sure. false ego we carry around with this, it's, it's fueled by possessions. We tend to think we are what we own. And again, there's a whole body of research that people that are more generous are more happy and they're more civil. And if they're more civil, it impacts our happiness. So generously sharing you know, our time and our talents and our possessions. Um, my wife and I remodeled our home recently and we had to move out all of our possessions, our clothes from our closets <laughs> and our appliances from our kitchen and our furniture. And when the home was done, we looked at all the stuff in storage and said, do we really want to bring all this back into the house? And I literally gave away probably 80% of my clothes and my suits and some of the things we own. We gave away some things that we, we really valued, but we hadn't used them for a year. And I can't tell you the joy of having a minimalist home with less stuff and the joy yeah. of just share, sharing what we had. And so in the workplace, there's many opportunities to share and be generous. And then the sixth one is really... Uh, caring for our communities. And we find that organizations that have a social component 
they get their employees involved in doing good in the community for the constituency that they serve as a business and getting involved in all kinds of uh, projects uh, makes a huge difference. We've, we've worked with a company in Idaho that, you know, it's a seasonal company. They make padding for um, ski resorts for the towers and for the seats. And, mm-hmm. and so they're kind of seasonal. And during the off season, they, they pay their employees full time, um, 40 hours a week to work 20 hours a week for the company and 20 hours a week in the community, painting houses and cleaning up yards, tutoring kids. And and it just is, I think in the future, companies don't have a social component that aren't adding more value than making money might really struggle. It's, it's something that we're all attracted to. You know, the company has to be a great company. It has to have great products. Great business model, great strategy, but if it then adds some kind of a service component to the community, uh, it, it aids all the outcomes: retention, no recruiting, performance, satisfaction. So, anyway, those are the six concepts that we introduced in uh, my new book, and we have a training program for the public. We have university courses. We're just rolling out a corporate training program now. So, the name of the book is. It's called One People, One Planet, Sticks Universal Truth for Being Happy Together. And the subtitle is actually important, Happy Together, that, you know, we looked at all the popular literature on happiness and so much of it is is, uh, really self-centered. It's set a bunch of goals, get control of your morning, accomplish something big. But the research shows the highest level of happiness occurs in the context of relationships, civil relationships with other people. So it's about being happy together uh, as human beings. Yeah, and giving. I mean, giving is actually the greatest source of happiness there is, but it's the one that we least do. The, uh, you know, okay, you're gonna be, I'm going to be pessimistic here just for the sake of our conversation. All sounds really great, Mike. Oh, those, those concepts sound terrific. Does it really have? Is it possible? Have you ever seen a company actually ticking off all six of those uh, and maybe you haven't, and that's why you wrote the book, and you want to help these organizations do this. Um, is this model better suited for smaller companies, medium-sized companies, large companies? Um, what are they, you know, how do, how do we get this adopted? Is it possible? Is it, it sounds too good to be true, almost. So it's, it's only possible if people are really interested in making it happen. And there has to be a real commitment to change our own personal happiness. You know, Arthur Brooks has created a course at Harvard called Happiness and Leadership. You might be aware of in his new book, Strength to Strength. And he really argues that because happiness in organization is such a huge impact uh, driver of success, it's, it's not that success leads to happiness. Happiness seems to be a driver of success. Because you have better relationships, you have better communication, you're more forgiving, you're more kind, you're more loving, and so on. And so if people really want to uh, apply these concepts, they really do work. As I mentioned in real time, uh, we all know these things. These are simple things. There's nothing new here. But the problem is we don't practice them. So what we do in like our university courses, we require each week our students to actually practice these concepts. For example, this week in one of my courses, they're doing three good deeds a day for seven days, and then they're reporting in a journal what happens. And they come back with tears in their eyes just saying, this was one of the best weeks I've ever had. That I loved being at school. And uh, I made, made some new friends. And I realized I just 
constantly worry about myself, me, me, me all day long. And so if people practice these concepts, they can see that they do work. And so our mission is to get people to try these in organizations and record, you know, don't take our word for it, just record what happens. And if it makes life better, if it makes the organization more civil, then people know that when things kind of go awry, that they maybe quit practicing these things. So we're helping keep conviction of the concepts. Well, a few things. One of the things I love is that you said, look, you got to have a, a sound business. You got to have a great product. You have to be focused on bringing value to the marketplace. Um, but what, what, what's exciting is that it, you know, we're coming out of the, the business environment of shareholder supremacy as a primary driver for everything in the way in which companies are operated. It's almost, it, it, almost in the name of morality. I'm going to get absolute returns for my shareholders because it's the quote unquote was the adopted moral, moral standard in Wall Street in many, in many places. Uh, Jack Welch led the way, and then Jack Welch led the way with uh, GE imploding, you know, over time and really challenging this notion that it's all about profits and shareholder returns. Yeah. And what I'm wondering is, is that do you sense in the marketplace uh, with the development of your book and the and in your 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 priorities as it relates to how you're seeing how businesses run, a, a strong shift away from that orientation. In other words, uh, into a new a new orientation of how great great businesses can really operate. Yeah, I think the shift is happening for two reasons. One is there's some great leaders with real integrity and compassion that want to create that kind of culture, and right. I can tell you about some of those. And I'd love to hear. Tell us about some of them. Give us examples. Well, that's the, the first way is that the leaders want to do it. The second uh, approach is they're being forced to do it and they kind of go along kicking and screaming and it's not real authentic because they yeah. need to recruit and they need to retain and they're, and they're not doing a good job at that. So one is out of choice and passion and the other one's kind of out of force. But right. let me tell you about uh, one of my favorite organizations I work with. There's several that uh, are great role models of what we're trying to teach here. This one's uh, actually a rehabilitation program for convicted felons. It's called the Other Side Academy. And uh, my good friend, Dave DeRocher is the executive director. Dave spent 20 years in prison in Los Angeles. Um, he did a two-year prison term, was out for three months, went back and did a three-year prison term, was out for a few months, went back and did a five-year prison term. Uh, was out for four months, went back, did a 10-year prison term, and then he was convicted of uh, 29 years. He was, he was the leader of the skinheads, the white gangs in the prison in Los Angeles. He held the keys to the yard, is what they say. I mean, he was a bad, bad dude, and he was violent. He sold guns and drugs and uh, assault, and, and he had a chance to go to a rehabilitation program in Los Angeles called Delancey Street. And he went through this process of these, these six concepts. He, he really had to take a good look at the judges, let him go and said, if you go to Delancey Street and you make it, you know, for the required time period, we'll release this prison term. But if you fail, you're back here to do your 29 years, which means he would have spent the rest of his life in prison. And he went through this incredible transformation, realizing that 
these perceptions that he had of himself as this horrible, bad, cool dude came early in child from abuse from his father and from getting in with the wrong crowd and using drugs early and, and then realizing it was easy to be a, a, a leader of losers rather than a loser amongst leaders. And he just became the gang leader in Los Angeles. And, uh, and he realized that deep in his heart, when he was younger, he was a really nice, compassionate kid. He liked people and he was kind. And so he rethought and rebuilt his, his character around a new concept of self, a new ego. And one of the things that he had to do is he had to quit judging all the other gangs, the Hispanic gangs and the black gangs and, and realize that they'd all had trauma and they were more similar than they were different. And so the other side academy, they all lived again the various gangs and their model is based on good deeds. Their, their philosophy is when person A helps person B, person A gets better. So they build companies to support themselves. They've got about a hundred convicts living together in houses here in Salt Lake city. And they build these companies and they go out and the rehabilitation program is entrepreneurship. It's building a company, creating a winner, the envy of an industry. And their moving company right now is the number one rated moving company in Utah. They've been stealing stuff out people's back doors. Now they carry it out the front door and move it in a moving truck somewhere else. And they're just awesome. They, when they're done, they, they'll sit down with the owner and say, hey, we noticed a, a scrape on the stairwell. And I don't think we did that when we moved the desk down, but you know, we might have. So we're going to repaint that wall for you. The service is unbelievable. And, uh forgiveness they have to go back through their lives and forgive the parents and people that offended them and so they go through this whole process they share all the resources together it's the the organization is supported by its revenue there's no outside government grants or donations it's businesses that are well run according to these principles of integrity and service and forgiveness and refraining from judging each other and it's, you know, one of the most successful rehabilitation programs in the world. They've got oh, a branch man. in Salt Lake and in Denver. And so that's, you know, that's one what? successful organization. I can tell you about another one I like, but uh, whatever you want to talk about. Please. Yeah, tell us what the, tell us another one. Um, th those are such inspiring stories. In fact, I'm sitting here going, we got to have, the, we got to have this guy, Dave, I think it is, you said. On the, on yeah, the podcast. Look up, look up the other side Academy, Salt Lake City, Dave DeRocher. I think he would uh, be very happy to be on your podcast. And he's an amazing, absolutely amazing guy. A strong, strong leader with real integrity and a compassion and a love for people. He doesn't judge anyone. He gives, cuts everyone slack. He works with them until they become decent. You know, their motto is act as if. You act as if you're decent and you become decent eventually. But another company... uh I like, it's called Automated Solutions uh, Inc. They build robots. It's a robotics company. Uh, one of the top privately held robotics companies in the country. And uh, they make robots for the military, you know, bomb diffusing robots. They make robots, driverless cars for the ag industry and the mining industry. And Mel Torrey is the owner and founder. And they have several hundred really smart people with all MBAs and PhDs and master's degrees in engineering. And he just realized early on that the only way they were going to be successful is if they introduced this extreme humility in the organization. So he created a program called Humble. And they 
the, the approach is that humility is the core value upon which all other values are developed, that you have to be open to learning and you have to realize you're not the greatest thing that there is. You have to kind of question some of your self-perceptions. And so they, they have to interact civilly with each other. They have to listen to each other. They have to realize everyone has value, that everyone has something to say. They make decisions after everyone has been heard. And he actually measures this every quarter. He has a measuring tool that measures humble. And they give each other feedback on how well they're listening and how well they're respecting each other and how civil they are to each other. And if you look up automated solutions, uh, ASI, uh, you'll see the incredible robots they're building, state-of-the-art solutions. So another great company that I uh, enjoy working with. And Mel Torrey is also on our board of directors. Well, we had the great honor of having Mel on our podcast. And I can't emphasize enough to all of you who are listening, if you missed that one, uh, be sure to to listen to that story because Mel is a truly uh, one of the kind of CEOs that we look to invest in. And I love that you brought him up as an example. Um, he, he really inspired me. Well, both of those individuals, you know, inspire me. I mean, it's great to, um, I always think it's fun to see the transformation of an individual, specifically with David. One of the things that we say, uh, our firm, it's, we're, we are, we're in the business of, of trying to identify CEOs and are currently having developed their character and, and are just behaving on all cylinders, but it's not, but people that say aren't doesn't, it's not a fixed thing. In other words, people can develop just like Dave developed into extraordinary human beings, no matter how, how far they've come. And, uh, those stories to me are the greatest stories. Those stories are the ones that we need to be told. Uh, those stories are the ones, uh, that probably have will end up having the biggest impact. So thank you for sharing that. I, I would love to meet Dave. Uh, fellow, uh, I just love this guy and he's built an incredible company. I was with him yesterday. Um, Lloyd Roberts, the founder of Loan Pro, which is a billion dollar company. And, uh, 10 years ago, Lloyd was pretty much living in poverty. He had started a bunch of businesses that just weren't doing all that well. And, and then, uh, stumbled onto, uh, the concept for Loan Pro. And uh, he's just published a book called G Cubed. And G Cubed is, he believes, is the formula for happiness that he's teaching throughout his company to all of his employees. And G Cubed is, there's three concepts that he believes lead, uh, leads to fulfillment. And one is, first one is gratitude, that we're not entitled to everything. We should be grateful for everything we have. We have an entitlement mentality. We can't appreciate what we have in life. The next one is growth, that everyone at work should be developing in some way that's important to them. And the third one is giving. And he believes those are not an additive function. There is a, uh, there's a multipl- multiplicative function. And that uh, if we promote those three things in our organizations, uh, we have more successful companies. And uh, they are a recent unicorn. Uh, he sold 20 I think 25% of his company a few years ago for $100 million, and now he's on a mission to raise 100,000 Cambodians out of poverty, and we're helping him with that project in Cambodia. Wow. Is it a public company by chance? No, it's a privately held company. 
It's too bad. Oh, it's wrong. That's amazing. That's amazing. So I have I uh, yeah. dozens of companies that I work with and speakers that I have come to the university. And and uh, there's just some awesome companies out there that are really making that shift to creating a really fabulous culture, place people love to work. You know, Mel's goal is to have all of his employees really want to come to work even when they don't have to after the, his goal is to make them all millionaires and, but have them still want to come to work because they love the culture of his organization. Yeah. So there are people out there like that. And, you know, if someone really wants to create that culture, we can help them a lot if they're willing to practice these concepts, but you know, you have to practice them to have the benefits. I think that that's a, that's an important thing to, to mention here in that, like it, we, we've heard some great and inspiring stories, but the neat thing about you, Mike, is that you could actually go into an organization and help them realize it. How do people reach out to you? How do they connect with you? If, if, for example, someone's listening to this and says, man, I need to implement all of these ideas into my organization. The best place is our website. It's onepeopleoneplanet.com. Uh-huh. And we featured there. We also have an online training program available to the public for a very reasonable cost. And you can get it for life, lifetime membership to that course. And uh, then all the social media, we're on, on LinkedIn. I have a LinkedIn newsletter. Uh, you can access and read each week things that we're doing to promote these concepts. Uh-oh. And then the book, uh, the book is full of stories. I, I've always tried to write books that are not boring, you know, business books that are not boring. And so I've, I've collected dozens of stories of people that have applied these concepts in their lives to teach the principles. So Dave Drocher's in the book. Mel Torrey's in the book. Um, Salsa Queen is in the book. Uh, Cy Snar, a woman who, uh, the greatest story of forgiveness we found, her son was shot and killed randomly by a stranger, an illegal resident in our country for Uruguay. Just walked up behind him and shot him and killed him when he was 18. And she talks about living in complete despair for 20 years, uh, total depression. She thought about suicide, but couldn't do it because she had other kids. And finally, this gentleman, uh, his name was Jorge, wrote her a letter from prison and asked for forgiveness and said what a horrible thing he had done and that it had taught it, it had ruined his life as well, but that he was very depressed at the time that he was suicidal himself and he couldn't pull the trigger because he was afraid to kill himself. So he thought if he did something horrible, he could then go through with his own suicide and the, he was caught and arrested before he took his own life. And, and, uh, they started becoming friends and writing back and forth. And then his weekly phone call, he started calling her on the phone and now she's been out to the prison to visit him. And he's had his family over for dinner, his mom. And, uh, she talks about letting go of that incredible hatred, uh, healer. Uh, it's a fabulous story and it's in the book as well. Uh, there's, you know, a book, a story about R. Shea Cooper, who grew up in the gangs in Chicago and learned to work on a, a rowing team with rival gang members and realized they were more alike and they were different and, uh, that they had to pull together to succeed. And they ended up kind of forgiving each other and, they realized their hatred was based on what they had heard about the other gang, not from any personal experiences. And, you know, his conclusion is it's, e- it's easy to hate from a distance. It's a lot harder to hate up close. And so the book is just full of wonderful stories that are very applicable to work in organizations about learning how to be happy together. 
and civil together. That's fantastic. And we need to confuse this into the world as much as we possibly can. Um, if you had one piece of advice for the younger generation, now that you're kind of on the other side of your, of your uh, professional career um, and given what you've learned, what's your advice? What would be the advice you'd give to you for those that are listening? You know, I think there's, there's some agreement as to why this epidemic of despair is so widespread for high school and college students. I mean, it's, it's really frightening. 40% of high school students say they're persistently sad and 20% say they're thinking suicide from time to time. And the college level, 60% of them say they're lonely most of the time. And the problem is uh, this new social world we live in, we're more connected in ways that are superficial than we've ever been, but more isolated than we've ever been. We don't have those real warm, friendly, sharing, giving, caring relationships with a broader group that I had mm -hmm. growing. Right. And uh, so again, happiness occurs in the context of relationships. And if they can get up every morning and instead of thinking, you know, me, 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 does my hair look right? Am I dressed cool? Do I have the right clothes on? Is so-and-so going to notice me? Did I say the right things? I mean, it's like uh, being on a, a treadmill of self-obsession. It just goes on and on and on. It's and if exhausting. they can get up and say, hey, I want to go, you know, I'm not perfect and I'm not the most handsome maybe or, you know, uh, whatever, gifted, but hey, I can add value. I'm going to go out and find someone today to, to do some good deeds for and look for ways to be other-oriented, to be service-oriented and uh, start building better relationships and making more friends and having more personal relationships where, you know, we have lunch together and we balance out each other's thoughts and speaking through hard times, that missing component is what uh, the young people today need. And that would be my advice to them is let's quit thinking about ourselves, go out, do good deeds, make friends, cut people slack, don't judge them, don't put them in categories, build a wonderful network of friends where you're adding value. That's a, that's a takeaway for all of us today and the rest of the week to go and do. And I also think that should be the true measure of wealth. You know, what is your friendship world like? Uh, what are the relationships like? And that, that's how we should be measuring ourselves more than the material and the dollars in our, in our bank account. Um, that's what uh, Lloyd Roberts uh, speaks about. He, he, he said, you know, I always thought when I was poor, if I had a million dollars, that would be awesome. And then he had a million and then he thought if I had 10 million, that'd be awesome. And then he had 10 million and he thought if I had a hundred million, that'd be awesome. Then he had nine figures in his bank account and he realized he just wasn't fulfilled and living a happy life. That that, that helped with some challenges to help pay a mortgage and it helped put food on the table. And he didn't have to choose, do I buy this or that? But it did help him to be f fulfilled. And so yeah. he went on this quest to really find out how do we really become happy and fulfilled in life and in our organizations at work. And uh, money, you know, uh, I know a lot of very wealthy millionaires and billionaires and it hasn't led to happiness. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's a surprising uh, truth that's, that's not often openly discussed. Um, but part of us that don't have the billions and the millions have to have the courage to trust that that's not the way when society says it's the other way it is the way and um and i and i hope these stories help me 
uh, personally, and others kind of build their confidence that the true source of happiness and richness is really uh, lies in in the immediate human beings that are closest to you in your life and, and next to you uh, day to day. So I love everything that you're saying, Mike. I'm so grateful for everything that you've contributed, both from the book and the research, uh, your personal career, your willingness to come uh, and just speak to us today about your learnings. Um, it's and it, it, it's so valuable and it's 100% aligned with Rock Investments, Return on Character Investments. We want to promote you guys as much as we can and what you're doing in the world. Uh, thanks again for, for being with us. Yeah, I really enjoyed being with you. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, I wish you all the best and exciting mission you're on. <laughs>